Welcome, everybody, to this conversation uh, to mark LGBTQ plus history month. That's something that's dear to the hearts of uh, many of us and certainly the people in this room. Um, on behalf of Papyrus Prevention of Young Suicide here in the UK, it gives me great pleasure to welcome uh, five lovely people who are going to share from their hearts and their heads and their bodies uh, what these matters mean to them and their respective organisations. So sit back, um, I'm going to introduce ourselves and then I've got some really taxing questions for my new friends. My name's Jed. I'm the chief exec at Papyrus, uh, based in the UK. Um, the celebration of this month is really important to Papyrus. We're very keen to know that, to tell people that um, whatever one's story, suicide remains the leading cause of death in the UK and in many countries besides. And our mission is to tackle that and to root out what's causing that and to be lifesavers along life's journeys for our young people. So I'm going to uh, pass the baton to my friend Jude, who will introduce himself. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Jude McCauley. I'm the founder and CEO at House of Rainbow. Uh, this organization started 14 years ago, and part of the core part of our work is to support um, LGBTQ plus people uh, on that journey of reconciling faith and sexuality. And because many people like myself have found religious rejection very, very uh, painful, and it has impacted to some extent on some thoughts of suicide. But having said that, I'm also a priest in the Church of England, so we're uh, doing a lot more on, on, on that journey of reconciling our faith and sexuality. I look forward to the conversation today. Thank you. Mo. Hello, I'm Mo Wiltshire, my pronouns are she and her, and I'm the Director of Education and Youth at Stonewall. We've existed as an organisation for 31 years. We were formed directly in response to the piece of legislation that many of us lived through and, and I'm sure a number of us are aware of called Section 28. Um, and we're still living with the shadow of that today. And I think that that's at the heart of so much of the stigma um, and challenges in society that we need to address in order to move to a world where we're all free to be. So really important discussion today and glad to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you all. Welcome. Catherine. Hello. Um, so my name's uh, Catherine Johnson. I'm a professor of community psychology uh, and I'm based at RMIT University in Melbourne. So I'm currently living and working on the land of the Woiwurrung and Woiwurrung uh, Kulin, uh, pe people of the Eastern Kulin Nations. And I want to kind of recognise that I'm, I am living on those unceded lands. I also have a long history of being um, working in the UK in the field of LGBT mental health and suicide and suicide prevention. I'm particularly invested in research which looks to demonstrate the evidence of community-based uh, approaches for both for kind of suicide prevention, suicide interventions and suicide postventions. So, so looking at kind of services that are led by um, and delivered for uh, LGBT people. Super. Thanks, Catherine. Welcome. Finn. Hello there. My name is Finn Gregg or Finn the Human as my young people know me as. Um, I am a trans person and use he or they pronouns. Uh, I'm one of the founders uh, of gen an organisation called Gendered Intelligence. We work with young people, young trans people or people who are non-binary or questioning their gender identity, uh, mostly across the UK, although this last year of COVID and uh, the world of online youth work has brought our audience um, from, from further afield than the UK. Um, but yeah, we have youth groups and, and local kind of provision uh, in different parts of mostly England at the moment. Um, yeah, and and I guess uh, sort of youth work is my is my is my bag. And today, sort of thinking uh, about how 
growing up young as a young trans person and binary person questioning your gender identity but also when sexuality uh, crosses over that um will be you know is is hard in the uk at the moment um and so just kind of thinking a little bit about the the questions from that angle thanks brilliant welcome finn thank you alex Hi there, I'm Alex Woolhouse. My pronouns are she and her, and I'm the pro bono and legal strategy coordinator at Mermaids, um, which is a charity that supports um, trans, non-binary and gender diverse children and young people in the UK. Um, I am in the legal and policy team and I'm a qualified solicitor. Um, and I focus on using the law um, and in particular strategic litigation to further the rights of trans non-binary and gender diverse young people um today so thank you very much for having me thank you alex and welcome and to our audience i want to say this you're welcome wherever you are on life's journey whatever your story please uh, feel at home with us here uh, we're all behind the scenes probably a little bit anxious about thinking what are they going to ask me what what am i going to say and that's all right but i want to think i want you to think about the questions i'm asking to the panel and consider them for yourself like this one what does this lgbt plus month history month mean to you what does this time of celebration or this this marking of of our collective stories and our history as a community as communities mean to you so without further ado let's hear from the panel Chida. Thank you so much. Um, the LGBT History Month means everything to me because um, growing up as a gay uh, boy in Nigeria, I didn't even know that these communities exist. So, and, and, I, and I think that the way that I look at it now is that we, though we focus on the month of February in the UK, I think 365 days of the year should be LGBT History Month. But it's really good to be able to look up and see those who have you know, um, gone before us, you know, those whose shoulders we ride on. And, you know, I mean, for for myself, um, it would be people like Justin Fashano, um, um, you know, James Baldwin, Audre Lorde, Marsha P. Johnson, um, these heroic figures. uh, So I can look up. But there's still a lot more to do. um, Because for me, when when I was growing up, I I was still searching, looking for um, the Black gay, Nigerian, uh, Christian, and I still couldn't find that particular uh, role model for me. And that is why I believe I become who I am today. So um, LGBT History Month is very, very important um, for everybody, uh, for families and for children, for communities. I love that idea that it shouldn't just be a month, it should be every day, every working hour. And, And the idea that I often say we stand on the shoulders of giants, don't we? It's really important that my story sits into a, a bigger jigsaw, yeah? Um, I, I'm going to try and play play with not just going around each time like that because it'll bore me and bore everybody watching. Just feel free if you can, with only a small group, just unmute and any comments on what Jude said. If anyone wants to go next, I'll try and make sure we get everybody in. Anybody want to go next? Um, yeah, well, I'll say something. I mean, I think the idea about stories and what stories are available is very important to me. And one of the things about history is hi- history is always contested. Um, and we have different versions of history and we, you know, the established and accepted versions of history. And within, you know, within our kind of narratives, often LGBTQI people have been erased from history. And I think this is a really, really important aspect of this month is actually to bring to the forefront, those key figures in our history, but in history generally, who, who don't get to feature, uh, who, you know, who have been stigmatised and erased. So I think that's really important. And I think it's important to both have a chance to tell other stories other than histories of pathologization and criminalization and marginalization. It's really important that we have other stories about ourselves of people who have been brilliant and, you know, and fabulous and successful and have made, you know, extraordinary contributions to, to society so that those, you know, we have that range of stories um, which are available for us all to kind of latch on to. Yes, absolutely right. I, I'm, I'm finding myself naturally using the word story a lot more these days because it's the thing that 
binds communities. We, we at Papyrus talk about developing communities, and that can be very paternalistic. We're not careful, can't it? Um, and we've got to be careful that we're not, for example, we'll come in and teach you how to reduce suicide. And what would we know anymore? Because we don't know your community, whatever that community story is. So increasingly using narrative and hearing people's story, whether that's an individual or a collective group or whatever. Any, any comments on what you've heard so just, far? Just, just to build on that, Jed, I think that's really important because storytelling is how, as humans, we make sense of the world. And I think LGBTQ History Month is that moment of reflection where we get to tell the story that our community has always been here, it will always be here, and give us that moment to look at the kind of the past, the present and our future. And I think it's if, if we think that um, LGBTQ History Month was started by Schools Out um, in 2005. So that's only two years um, after Section 28 was repealed in England yes. and Wales. So if we think of the stories that that's told to our young people and, and many of us who um, uh, had an education um, in uh, the UK, actually what story that's told ourselves, we've still got a great um, shadow to remove. So it is a month of, of celebration and I think there is a lot to celebrate, but it's also important that it's a time for truth when we talk about how much still needs to change in order to ensure that all of our children and young people um, see themselves reflected in their in their school environments and, and wider society. I mean, and just just on a personal level, you know, if I look at within my own family, um, uh, when my uh, mum was eleven. Um, we still lived in a time of, of criminalisation. When I was 11, Section 28 came in. My daughter was 11 when she started in Year 7 this year at a time when we have LGBTQ inclusive statutory relationships and sex education. So it is important to see that change can happen. We are progressing, but actually there is still a lot to be done. And it's important that that we don't rainbow wash reality when, when we know that there's some important conversations still to be had and changes to make. Absolutely. I was going to add, add in a word there as well, pain, P-A-I-N. There's a, still a lot of pain in the sharing of story and the, and the reflection of the history. And I, I love your phrase, let's not rainbow wash everything. It's not all mulhood and apple pie. There's a hell of a long way to go for, for people today. Um, I just want to pick up on, um, I guess, Mo's um, lovely point that, you know, we've always been here. And I think that's a really important um, moment uh, thing to look at during LGBT History Month. I think there's a tendency in the media um, to think that um, particularly trans nurse and, and non-binary identity um, is this sort of newfangled thing. And it's absolutely not. There's, you know, evidence of it in ancient Greece and in the court of Versailles and in Hindu scripture for, you know, thousands of years. And you know, it, it's important that we educate ourselves that although these people used different words to understand their identities and use different concepts, that we actually are all connected throughout history and have always been here. So I think that's also a really important point to think about. Absolutely. Yeah. Finn, did you want to comment on that? Yeah, just here, here to Alex, uh, Alex's points there. I mean, you know, I'm a big fan of trans people, uh, being one myself and also <laughs> uh, working quite, quite a lot in the trans community, just knowing how um, how wise we are and how wise the children that we work with are and being able to tell them that the people that were um, doing gender differently in times gone by, uh, we call them our transcestors, uh, we're often seen as the wise people in their communities and given um, different statuses within tribes, for example, or within communities around being the medicine people or the wise people or the people that people would go seek uh, seek um, advice from, etc. And I think it, it really comes from that pers that place of having, you know, multiple perspectives in the world. Um, and so, yeah, I really just want to kind of highlight um, new words as well, rather than history. So, as a young as a young feminist, I dissected the word history and realised it had the the pronoun his in it, and I was like, hang on a second, what about my history? Um, so we we've changed it up a bit at GI. We use the word transitory. 
Um, and I know there are other other words to talk about um, our past, but I think the word story is is key, isn't it? And journeys. Um, and yeah, just to reflect, so I was at school during during Section Twenty Eight, and when I was about fifteen, my tutor was trying to make me do a, a Hamlet essay or something rubbish like that in English, and I was like, "Hold on a sec, this is not not what I care about." I've discovered this thing called Section Twenty Eight, and I started writing a newspaper about it. And she said, "Come come outside the classroom for a second and I was like, "Okay, whatever." So I went outside the classroom. She says, "So you can't do that in school." <laughs> And it's like, what? So I was doing something I cared about at school and it was about my life and my queer identity and my history. And um, and I wasn't allowed to do it because it existed, because Section 28 existed. And it was I remember kind of quite viscerally that day being the day where I was like, right, school's not for me. This is not the place where I'm going to learn or learn about who I am. And I went off and did sort of youth and peer stuff. And I think when we think about doing, like Jide said at the beginning, you know, History Month, it's like it has to be 365 days. We have to be telling our young people that they have existed before and that they have uh, ancestors and transestors to um, sort of help them guide their way, really. And totally what Alex said, we're not we're not trans people aren't new. Maybe some of the hormones, the medicines, et cetera, are new. Maybe some of the legal rights for LGBTQ plus people are new, but we have always existed. Yeah, yeah. I love that. That, that is so good. Honestly, thank you so much, Finn. I think I've just learned a new word now, transcestors. Um, Mo, I want to just quickly come back to your example. Thank you so much for the 11-year, 11-year, 11-year-old. And, you know, LGBT History Month has, has not always been a celebration because when we think about those people who made LGBT History Month even possible, they went through a lot. I mean, Masha P. Johnson is celebrated today, but when Masha P. Johnson and and her peers put the foot in the police officer's vehicle, they were not smiling at that time. You know what I'm saying? But I also want to, to kind of like also bring to my mind and to, to this panel that LGBT History Month is still painful for many people. And I want to look at the Black community. How do we celebrate LGBT History Month? Some people, maybe in the age of technology, can only browse their mobile phones in the privacy of their bedroom and maybe watch a few things and that's all. Now, how about those in Uganda, Nigeria, or those migrants that have come to the UK and are still living in communities that are still very hostile? And um, some of us cannot bring ourselves to come out away from that community or even to come out in that community because they still, they, they play our music, they eat our food and, you know, it's, it's a cultural um, bubble for us. So LGBT History Month has a lot to give but we also have a lot more work to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, this is a a global opportunity rather than a a parochial one, isn't it, for all of us? Yeah. One of the things that I've picked up so far and inevitably in these conversations is the importance of language and the opportunity that language gives us either to hinder or to help. I I love um, the the idea of transestry. I think that's a lovely example of, of the creativity of people um to to retell retell our stories in new ways in a way and and, and find new language and new pictures and new imagery and I, I draw often on the parallel between this sort of uh, conversation and the conversations we have in the world of mental health and particularly suicide prevention so one of the big no-nos in suicide prevention is uh, the use of the phrase committed suicide uh, because of the vestiges of the residual association with suicide and criminality. And I often very crudely, I guess, draw parallels between, I often use a phrase like this, what we're trying to do at Papyrus is to bring people on a journey comparable to that we've done with homosexuality. Uh, we, we, what, what we've done is recognise something that was forbidden out of, you know, off pe- outside people's lexicon and, and kept there, kept silent, if you will, and thereby we've created stigma. And when we've decriminalised that, we've we've gone on a very painful, creative journey, uh, which continues. And and similarly, I think we're doing that with suicide, something which, in most countries was was or still is a crime in, in england for example the 1961 suicide act finally hopefully put to bed the, the idea that suicide is is a, a crime and yet still we're using language like committing suicide 
and we use it, it trips up the tongue. And I think there's a strong parallel between those two journeys in terms of language, at least, and how our language betrays our real attitudes. And and there's a nervousness even today, holding this, hosting this panel, that my language trips up, that I get the wrong word. And I always say to people, don't worry. If you say committed suicide, no one's going to shout at you. But just think about what that means. And if I get somebody's pronoun wrong. It's not out of willful damage. It's, it's trying to learn all the time. So it's in that context, really, that I invite you to ponder, panel, this question. And if you're watching this at home, uh, ponder this question too. Think about the reality that if we look at the demographics and the statistics, it would suggest that people who identify as LGBT plus are more likely to die by suicide than others would. I wonder why that is. Now, for, I'll start by saying the one thing I've learned about suicide over the years is it's complex and there's no, you know, X equals Y, cause equals suicide. It's not It's not like that. But I wonder what, what the panel thinks about the fact that um, our communities are often hit by suicide more often than other communities. Um, so anybody like to start us off on that? Where are we at with suicide among LGBT plus people? You may want to suggest a why, but I just want to open the conversation gently if I can. I may need to uh, selectively pick on someone. So who's going to... I was going to say something about the the idea that LGBT communities are more are more likely to die from suicide than perhaps um, a heterosexual thing. And I, I think that that evidence is a bit more, a little bit, bit less concrete because the way that deaths are recorded are always quite, it's always quite difficult um, that because uh, often coroners don't actually pay attention and, and certainly historically families may wish to have erased any sense of people's um, kind of gender diversity or their kind of... Um, sexual orientation so I think that for us to make those sorts of concrete claims is much more difficult the, the place where the the evidence is really um really really firm is in relation to the different levels of experience of suicidal distress suicidal feelings thoughts and suicide behaviors so we have a there's an a, you know kind of conclusive amount of evidence that the LGBT community is much more, uh, you know, affected um, in that kind of way. So so I think that for me that's always been, so from, an, from a research perspective, I've, I'm always a bit careful about making the actual claim that, that the, the kind of likelihood of death by suicide is higher within LGBT communities rather than actually the fact that there is a level of distress which really does need support within LGBT communities. And that currently, until we can get some changes in the way that coroners actually um, kind of address the way they kind of record deaths, then then we can't really make those kind of claims, I would say. So... Which makes me then, you know, think about well, what what do we we need to think about? Well, how as a community then do we support that distress, and what might be the reasons for that level of distress and the level of reporting of of distress? Um, I think you know we do know that if someone has made um, an attempt uh, on their life, that then they can that they can increase their own individual risk um, for suicide. But I think when often when a lot of the data about pop is it's about a population and it's not really about kind of individuals so really what we have to think about from from my perspective is is about community-based interventions in order to allow people to talk about their distress um, allow the kind of facilitation of peer support um, the opportunities to listen to lived experience because that's really where we'll learn most about um, how to um, deliver strong interventions and also prevention strategies for communities is by listening to people's lived experience. Um, and, and so that for me is really where I see the kind of key key kind of issues at the moment. Very helpful, Catherine. I, I, forgive me if I if I sort of bromided over the fact that of what you just said. It, I, I think I meant suicidality rather than death. But, actual reflection let's let's remember the context here in this country we've only just and, and 
hard battle fought to change the way in which coroners can record whether this death was by suicide by changing from the criminal standard of proof beyond all reasonable doubt to the civil standard, which is on the balance of probabilities. And then finally, that happened in 2018 and was appealed again. So 2018, we're talking about a long, a long game. Since 1961, we've deemed this to be a crime in, in practice, not in dogma, but in, pra- in law, but in practice. People were still being thought of as criminal and families have, have thought of suicide as, as sort of something that, about which we shouldn't speak. Um, so it, the state has been creating that stigma. So there's, there's, again, the strong parallels between the, the, the actual deconstruction of criminality as has happened a, around sexual orientation legislation as well. Um, and I, I take your point about the, the, the way in which individual stories and community stories need to come out of that in spite of the legislative framework, which sometimes impoverishes the data collection. Any other comments on suicidality and suicide among LGBT plus communities? Yeah, I mean, um, as there are a number of factors that I think contribute to um, suicidality in, in um, young trans and non-binary and gender diverse people, and and um, you know we, we've seen recently that the the sort of attacks on um, bodily autonomy for um, trans people, and and um, the Bell and Tavistock case, where um, a court will have to decide whether um, may have to decide. Um, whether a child can start uh, puberty blocking um, medication um, to assist with um, a child's gender dysphoria, um, you know things like access to healthcare, um, access to single sex spaces um, in schools of, of their affirmed gender, and and having their gender affirmed. Um, can all have a, a really massive impact on on how that um, young trans person can, can can sort of experience happiness in in their affirmed gender and, and experience gender euphoria. Um, I think, in particular, it's the the healthcare point. The state of trans healthcare in the UK is 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 really tough, and and um, there is a really long waiting list for medical intervention um, that so many of these people um, require for their gender dysphoria. Um, and so, so yeah, I think those are some of the, the things that, um, that, that can contribute to suicidality, in, in particularly young trans children. Thank you, Alex. I don't know what it was you said there, but it just helped me to, to remember for me and for each other and for the people watching this, this is tough. This is really tough stuff. We're talking about our stories. We're talking about your story. And and you're not with us, perhaps. So, so just a reminder that Hopeline UK is available as you watch this from 9 a.m. in the morning to midnight. If anything we say um, sparks a, a, a thought that distresses you, please pick up the form, text or email us. The details are at the bottom of this video. Um, please look after yourself as we share our stories and it, it helps you to reflect on yours too. Any other comments at this stage? Around Absolutely. Um, I, I'm just going to come in there as well. I mean, I, I think, uh, Catherine, thank you so much, you know, for the, the expression you gave earlier on and, and also to Alex. Um, I think that, you know, for the black community, as far as I know, um, you know, there is actually no specific data, you know, that is conclusive, um, you know, that a- any form of societal thoughts or, or even if these things are, are, are coming up for people is necessarily linked or, or alone linked to being LGBT. But I think that there's a, there's a level of frustration that needs to be identified Yes, um, black LGBT people go through a lot of stress, uh, a lot of frustration, especially when it's, it's, it's coming out to family and, and the other experiences, especially if they have been either forced out of their home or they have been made homeless or even things like poverty can an attribute, you know, to thoughts of suicide. Now, I mean, a, a quick example that we might have seen in the media is an, an asylum seeker who's 
you know, case has failed, you know, had then committed suicide. I'm sorry, I beg your pardon. You see, this is why we're doing this. Exactly. This is why we're doing this. So if you're watching and you're listening, you can see that even I make mistakes. Yeah. And and they have had thought of suicide and they have either carried it through, which would be unfortunate because what I believe is missing is the peer support that Catherine was talking about. You know, the lived experiences of people that have gone through those challenges and be able to help others. And these are very important things that we need to be looking at and talking about so that we can reduce the risk. Okay, we can reduce the risk. But I don't think that overall um, that being LGBT is a a single factor, um, you know, of um, societal thoughts. There are many other factors that will add to it. I mean, someone could be going through um, a difficult situation for being black, you know, and they might be in a closet about their sexuality. Um, when I, before I came out as gay, I was in a seven-year relationship with a woman um, who I married in the last three years of that relationship. I certainly had societal thoughts. Um, when I went through challenges of xenophobia, racial discrimination, as I was even joining to become a priest in the Church of England. You know, I was living in a beautiful three-bedroom house that had beautiful banister. And there are times I would think, you know, how I could hang myself, you know, (laughs) on those banisters. So you can see, but I think the important thing is to find the support and the help as soon as possible. And this is why we we need communities and we definitely need, you know, um, the the Hotline UK for for those here in the UK. Yeah. Again, language. One uh, phrase I've been using for years, and it's just struck me afresh. We talk about contributory factors Mm -hmm. to suicide. It's not this has caused it, but this has contributed to our feeling suicidal. Thank you. I just thought um, it was useful. So I'm I'm sure um, many of us um, have come across it before, but it it might not be something that that everyone who's watching this has seen. But the Queer Futures Project, um, which is which is gives some really useful insight into understanding um, actually some of the the contributing factors in relation to to thoughts, behaviours or intentions or actions of suicide. And um, the key conclusions from it were talking very clearly about the impact of experiences of homophobic, biphobic or transphobic discrimination um, that we know are are still too high. Um, And we, you know, our own Stonewall School report, over half um, of the LGBTQ um, young people who responded experienced um, bullying still and less than half feel able to talk to an adult about it to seek support and I think it's about the the, the harm the pain of the, the bullying and discrimination that coupled with that um, unable to find a um, an affirming response and um, there was there's also a, a key theme around um, sexual and gender norms and just that that still the internalized um, perceptions of, of shame of being marginalized experience of marginalization um, and then that challenge of perhaps being fully out in some parts of our lives and not in others yes and actually some of the challenges of, of managing that and then um, the, the last key finding was was about that being unable to talk and that absolutely um, speaks to um, Jide uh, and Catherine's points in relation to that community-led responses so that people are able to, to talk through their, their thoughts um, and their behaviours um, in an affirming way, uh, in a way that validates um, identities but also does not judge so that people can access support um, at the time that is right for them uh, and what's exciting about the queer futures project is the second part is is um, due for completion towards the end of the year and that's looking at what works with LGBTQ young people and and support services and community responses in actually supporting people to access help in relation to um, thoughts and behaviours of suicide. So I think that's helpful that we've got, as we say, some some greater understanding that allows us to make sure we're designing our, our support systems in the right way. Yes, thank you, Mark. Anybody else want to jump in on that? Yeah, I just wanted to touch a little bit on on sort of community leaders, because I think um, when we think about where uh, prevention and, and support is best placed, it, it, you know, I always it always just goes back to 
to being in the community for me um so we we understand our youngers we've been there um and they look to us and see a possible future as well um one of the things growing up as a young queer and trans person is that there weren't the adults who looked like I might look (laughs) like when I grew up um, around me and so I had to kind of forge my own path and that came with its own with its challenges Um, you know we grew up I grew up in a in a cisgendered household uh, heterosexual household and had to sort of look at a mum and a dad and see where I might sit within that and not not feeling like I maybe had a future that would um you know that was mapped out for me or that I could follow in the footsteps of um so it really links to the first question about what why the importance of LGBT history month so to see our elders and to see our community surviving and thriving uh, and being celebrated and 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 really thinking about that intersectionally so not thinking that me as a white trans person I could support a black trans youth for example but that I can create spaces for uh, black workers to support those trans youth so wherever you are in your in your communities thinking about who are the lgbtqi plus people that you can uh, create space for and and push forward to be able to be supporting those young people so i know that when i was at school you know i knew who the queer teachers were i could see them a mile away i had my radar up and i was like it's that person i want time with that person and they weren't my teacher that year for example they were very far far away from me so it was it was it was that maybe that those people could be being um celebrated in those environments so that that the young queer people can uh, lgbtq plus people queer is my quick umbrella term for that acronym um so those people can find those adults and see and see see them and speak to them and i think within that it's uh, really important to, for us to consider that um and you meant you mentioned it earlier but that we as adults have, have also lived that experience and might might need some support <laughs> so i support my youth work team to to do the work that they do but they're, they're doing that having come from their own experiences of of teenagehood and, and youth um and the difficulties we we go through sometimes so yeah support your 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 colleagues and your peers who can do the work with the young people um but also think about what support support they might need um and I just wanted to say about the the kind of the rates and, you know, we see all these statistics about um, who has who has died uh, from suicide or who who have have suicidality and, and, and thoughts. You know, it's no wonder <laughs> when we grow up in a world that is is telling us all the time that we're wrong or bad or ugly or don't have a future or don't belong. Um, it's it's no wonder that those young people are are struggling and thinking, well, is there a point um so another reason to make prominent uh lgbtqi plus adults who have um got through and gotten stronger because of their youths um and are doing great work in the world so yeah try and do try and do that way you can and that's really helpful one of the things again what's happening in my heart right now is remembering some of the language we often use regularly and it's slowing my brain down to ponder and one of the freight one of the paradigms if you want is when we're working with a person who's having thoughts of suicide is recognizing that part of them is staying in the past dwelling it used to be like this or maybe an obsession with what could be but what isn't so the past explicitly or implicitly longing for a future or not being able to see a future so more your reminder to us of queer futures is is a, a lovely drop into that mix that the future is an is an issue for us and in order for people to move from that dwelling on what could be or the the death side of the paradigm to move to life we need to come through the present and the now and we need to work out what's going on in a person's story right now and then part of the aid to move people to see the potential for a future might be things due to like peer support it might just be the very fact that we can help a person validate their history and their their past in the now that helps them see a little glimmer of hope for the future so if you're watching this today and you're struggling because future is not available to you just hear what all of us have said there there is there is a future. It may not be available to us right now, and you may be feeling very uncertain about life. Just please bear with yourself and be patient. And if you need help right now, Hopeline UK is available 
in the UK to you as you watch this. I want to think about... Sorry, before we go ahead, I mean, I totally agree with you, Finn, and I think community leaders um, within the queer community, within the LGBT plus community, uh, also provide visibility that is that will affirm the young person, to be quite honest. And I really, I, your, your experience is just so good that you, at, at a tender age, you were able to identify those who are on your radar. And every child needs that because it provides, even if you didn't approach them, it will provide some level of security. And, um, you know, and, and more, I also agree with you. It, 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 you know, this Queer Future Project, it's, I, I hope you get all the funding to make it more uh, of a bigger issue and campaign. Honestly, it needs to be out there. It's because people don't have this information. We don't know that it's there. That is why, you know, people think, I can't be helped, you know, and um, and, and I hope that that will change. Yeah. Uh, it's, just, so it's not a Stonewall project. <laughs> um, but, just, it, it's, it's, a, it's a group of, of amazing academics who published the work. It's all in the, in the um, public domain. And I wonder, Jed, if we could put we'll a put link to it. Yeah, we, do you think? Yes, that would be great. Thank you. <laughs> I, I, see, I see people saying the link will be below. I'm trusting that the team can do that somehow. <laughs> Staying with that paradigm of past, present and future, um, which is not always explicit in a conversation around suicide, but it's implicit at least. Notionally, the idea of dwelling in the now with the person, with each other, sharing our story, having that story heard, is a really crucial part of us being able to help that person to begin to see a future. So that's what I'm going to ask us to do now. Stay with the now. Stay with the, the story because part of that remains a painful reality. And I, I want to bring up two words. I'm just going to drop them into the pile and then leave you to make sense of them. The first word is shame. And the second word is stigma. Over to you. Any thoughts? Uh, I might say a bit about this because I've been stood here thinking about shame whilst everyone's been been talking because one I think the one of the things about shame is a very powerful uh, emotion is that shame um it, how we deal with shame is it often it disconnects us from people so so it, it you know like you know, if you look at a, a young child who experiences shame they will drop their eyes and and they they wait and they need you know that adult to then to then kind of reconnect with them to to help them lift their chin up and feel connections and not feel bad and feel bad in themselves and there is a strong association between feelings of shame and suicidal um kind of behaviors as a way of trying to escape those feelings of shame and I think for for me one of the one of the things when we think about Within the kind of at risk of suicide, kind of, uh, kind of, I suppose the epidemiology of LGBT people as being at risk of, is that actually there are certain moments when maybe that risk is is higher, and actually that makes it quite difficult for our interventions approaches because often it's actually before someone has perhaps come to publicly name themselves as being. Um, uh, part of the community or you know or even to publicly acknowledge their questioning of their gender or sexual um, identity so so in that kind of sense they're, they're dealing with a lot internally and actually and then if things happen if there's negative representations around them or they're being bullied at school because people think they might be queer and then they think they might be queer uh, and that can kind of lead to the kind of feelings of, of shame and feelings also of not knowing how to deal with this so I think it's that kind of that moment and then as soon as someone is able to find connection to reconnect you know you come back into the present and you you don't feel bad and you're you have that you know somebody sees you and, and you connect back so so for me shame is a very powerful part I think of what happens in people's individual experiences of suicidal distress. And I guess stigma is really what I would say is the kind of wider context, uh, you know, and that it's the stigma uh, that's associated that then creates that kind of circumstance in which people start to feel shame. So so that would be my kind of um, uh, understanding of those two terms. It's a lovely um, 
uh, idea that often uh, when I go on a radio program, I almost, it's almost a standing joke now, I wait for the fourth question in an interview and it's always what are the signs of somebody being um, suicidal as, as though it was that people have a rash or a bump on the head or something, you know. But one of the things you've just reminded me of is that we can see shame in others sometimes and, you know, that it can be an indicator sometimes. That, you know, we, we talk about hiding things, but actually sometimes our body gives away that pain. Any other thoughts on, on shame or stigma? Yeah, I think, I, I guess, if anyone that's listening to this is feeling some sort of shame because they are um, LGBT, I, I guess I just want to um, reframe the, the sort of narrative, hopefully, um, that, that might um, contribute to that shame and that, you know, that you've made some you know, shameful decision to be LGBT and, or, you know, because of your LGBT status, that's something to be ashamed of. And, um, and I just, I, I just want to reframe that. It's, it's a completely, un, it's an undeniable truth um, that you are LGBT, if that's how you, you know, if you're feeling, and um, it's not something to be ashamed of, or it's not a shameful decision or, act or anything it's just an undeniable truth people always ask me when I um came out as as trans like are you are you happier now am am I happier now and and I sort of say it's not about for me personally it's not about feeling happier it's just it's just correct that I'm a woman. It's it's an undeniable fact. Um, it's not, you know, something that I've decided because I think that's going to, to lead to a happier existence. It's just the truth that that's in my heart um, that I am a woman. And so uh, there's no there's no reason for me to feel shame about that. Absolutely. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. Oh, honestly, it, people ask me the same question. Are you happy now that you come out as gay? Well, I mean, how do you define happiness? How do you define happiness in that moment? I mean, what, 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 what we're trying to do is to be ourselves. I mean, I, I think that the entitledness to happiness is what we make of our own lives, really. And, you know, no one is responsible for making us happy. We have to be happy for ourselves. And if we make decisions that that aligns with our nature, with our, our, our natural ability, then that's one good thing. Um, I think I'll be happier if I get a pay rise, you know, so I can, you know, pop an additional glass of wine or something like that, you know. So, I mean, the whole idea about you know, making someone unhappy so that you can be happy is neither here or there. But honestly speaking, I mean, it's a good question because it has come up for me many times, the issue of stigma and shame. I think there is a a high level of self-shame when it comes to um, being LGBT+. And, And let me take this one step further. Within the Black community, being gay or lesbian is, it creates this deep, personal shame, this self-shame. And of course, then you have an entire community that shames you as well. Now, well, God forbid if you're also a person of faith, a Christian or a Muslim, the, the shame from that community is, and the stigma, you know, is overriding. And in the context of our conversation today, it will increase the thought of suicide and it will trigger the pain that people go through. But I mean, let me express this in, in another way. Not understanding LGBT folks, not understanding our humanity would lead to a fear of disappointment. I remember when I first came out as gay, I felt I let the entire Nigerian country down. I felt I let my parents down. I mean, my my, my father even brought it up. He said, you're a disgrace. You have brought my family name to disrepute. And can you imagine the burden of all of that? And how do I live with myself without shame. And honestly, the more I do my work within the LGBT community, and then when we came to the issue of hate crime, and there was this big question, Jude, why are the Black community not reporting hate crime? 
I said, listen, I've had to deal with a lot of shame and stigma. I think the last thing I want to do is to report my, my homophobic father to the police who will end up in jail. And then that will multiply the stigma and shame from my own community. So, um, Alex, thank you so much for the point you made. You just triggered so much for me in that moment. But, you know, my, my final thoughts on this very point is that, you know, there's the fear of disappointing our families, the fear of disappointing our culture, our tradition, and, of course, the fear uh, and the pressure from the, the, the bullying culture. And overall, the fear of failing can make us feel ashamed and can increase the stigma we experience. Thank you, Jude. It's really powerful. Thank you. Anybody else? Shame and stigma. I just wanted to um, <clears throat> so share a reflection, which is that um, what's really important to think about the role of, of shame and stigma for me is that it reinforces the message that as an LGBTQ young person, there is nothing wrong with you. There is everything wrong with the society that does not let you be you. Uh, and it, it is recognising that being LGBTQ in itself does not increase the likelihood of poor mental health outcomes or increase the risk of, of suicidal thoughts. It is society's response. And so that means we can help society change. And so for, for people watching um, this uh, recording who perhaps themselves are allies, there is a message to think about. How do I signal that validity? How do I show that I am not part of society perpetuating shame? What is it that I personally can do to ensure that I have created an inclusive environment so that everybody feels fully valid and able to be themselves? That, that's our task for change. And that's when coming back to the theme of LGBT history, we look at all of the changes that have been created are by individual humans choosing to use their time, their power to create the new society that we want that's allowed the progress that we've achieved so far and will continue to do so if we're all committed to that action. To stick our foot in the door to allude to an earlier image, that's, that's a lovely thing that I'll take away from this morning. Thank you. Um, one one reflection on stigma um a colleague of mine and a friend of mine a dear friend of mine said that when his child died by suicide it was all over the press um a, a facile story about the child who died and he read in one of the comments four words which created and perpetuated stigma family to blame here and it resonated when Jude you shared your story about your own heritage and your own that that image of you doing this the burden that that can can carry on a person can be crippling and um, so I, i'm with you more we need to stick our feet in the door uh, whether whether it's my community or 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 that i care for somebody in that community i need to stick my feet in the door more often and say not bloody good enough uh, we're, we're people of hope not people of shame any other comments on stigma and shame So if that's okay, I'm going to drop in another word and I'm going to give you two jobs each here. The word is hope. And I want you to give me a hope that you have, once lockdown restrictions globally are lifted, what's the one thing you're looking forward to? So I'll give you a moment to think about that. And then what's your message of hope right now for young people. So I'm going to start off uh, having set the question. My hope for post-lockdown, um, and this is a very personal one, is to be able to touch and be touched. And it just strikes me that how few people have actually been in physical contact with. <laughs> uh, so that would be, be one. And, and obviously I want to actually sit and have a cup of tea with my friend or my sister. Nothing glorious. I don't want a big holiday. I don't want to travel. I just want to see my friends again. So that would be my first one. And the message of hope, one thing I really am looking forward to, and it's just come out of this experience. I've really enjoyed this. And it's whetted my appetite to do more of it, to have conversations about something that's close to my heart with allies and friends. And sometimes with people who might challenge that my 
assumptions as well. So that my hope is to have more of this. Right, I'm going to throw the ball to Alex, and then she has the uh, the joy of being able to pass the ball on to somebody else. So, Alex, do you want to? So, a little hope for post lockdown, and then a message of what what are you looking forward to more generally? What's your hope for young people? I guess mine is that we continue this conversation, and that if you're watching this and you're a young person, that you're able to join in the conversation where you are too. So, Alex, over to you. Um... So my hope for when lockdown is over, I think is, is you know, very similar to yours. It's I want to see my friends again. I want to, you know, be able to socialise with them and hug them and um, do the things um, that we did before and that I really miss about um, my friendships with them. And then my hope for, for, for sort of young people and, and particularly trans young people is that I know that at the moment the media is discussing um, your lives and your bodies all the time and it feels like your um, your lives are up for debate and that and I, I'm sure that will end. My hope is that that will end um, soon um, and that you will be able to live the same normal, um, quiet, boring or fun, fabulous life as any other person um, in the world um, and your transness won't affect that. So that's my hope as well. Fantastic. Alex, who are you going to throw the, throw the baton to next? And um, I'll forward it to Finn as he's below me. Thank you, Alex. Caught the ball. Um, so when lockdown's up and I, you know, I think there'll be lockdown and then there'll be other restrictions that need to re- uh, relax as well. Um, but I think one of the things we do every summer is take young trans people camping. And it is, it's, I started it in 2010 and took eight kids. And last year, a couple of years ago, we took 150 on, a, on what we called super camp. And every year we take around 50 or 60 people camping and it's changed me in my life, uh, having been someone who's who's been on every camp. Um, but every young every year we go, young people tell me it's changed there. So I just really hope we get to go camping with our young trans people this summer. We had to cancel last year, and some of the young people that we work with talk about it being the the marker in their year that helps them get through a year as well. Um, that they look forward to camp, that they can see that on the horizon. So I hope we get to go. We've bought lots of extra single single pod tents this year in case we get to go in like. A distanced way who knows um so i just hope we get to go camping and you know that that's not too much to ask maybe um a message of hope um that you can use your difficulties that you're experiencing right now to make you stronger this is something i always say to young people when i'm working with them is that um i've managed to do quite a bit of work with my adult life um but none of that I would have been able to do if i hadn't gone through some of the things i went through as a child and a teenager so to be able to resonate and relate back to those young people I'm working with and say, yeah, I remember and I, I went through something similar um, and look what maybe you can do. And actually not to say people should go through hard times and I really don't believe we should, but um, but if you do that, you can use that uh, and turn it into a power. Um, and, a, and, a, and a kind of additional message of hope would be that the, that the difficulties we've experienced in the last year or so, and I'm not just talking about COVID, I'm talking about Black Lives Matter, I'm talking about climate change struggles, I'm talking about all the kind of awakenings that young people and young adults and, young t- and, and younger people have experienced in the last year or few years, will really wake you up um, and wake up the adults around you to support you to to change the world basically because I think um there's no way you can have this amount of information and this amount of of protest and this amount of issues to the fore and social media telling you giving you access to more information um and not not want to do something with it so uh, I just hope that I can uh, support you and, and and be there to to help you make a, a better a better world Super. I love that phrase, turn it into a power. Yeah, turn your turn your turn your pain into a power. <laughs> That's what I've tried to do. Um so with my ball, I'm gonna throw it over to Catherine. You're, you're mute. I am um so I'm in Melbourne, so I'm actually we had our very tough lockdown at the end towards the end of last year. So I actually am living in that kind of more restricted but not lockdown state that uh, Finn mentioned is coming. But what I really hope is 
for the opening up of international borders so that I can travel back to the UK. Um, and I'm also one of the um, researchers on the Queer Futures 2 project. So my hope is that I can come back to the UK so that when I can be part of when we've got our findings and that we're disseminating, disseminating our findings and that our findings will transform the way that the mental health services for LGBT young people are delivered in the UK. So that's my that's my big hope, um, that, our, that the research will make a big impact. And then my, I suppose my hope for young people is that, that you can find connection, that you can find community. I think sometimes we can feel quite alone and we can feel quite isolated and that can make us feel quite fearful and fearful of rejection. But I think you just need to be true to yourself and you will find your community. You'll find your mob, uh, your group. And um, and I'd like to say, um, because of our project that we're doing, the research that we're doing, we've been working with the most fantastic um community-based services, youth services all over the UK, and they are all over the UK, and they they are there to support LGBTQ young people, people who are unsure, undecided. So you can reach out, find connection. That would be my kind of hope. So thanks. Thank you. Oh, um, um, and Didi, I'm passing over to you. Thank you so much, Catherine. Right. Um, first of all, my hope is probably similar to uh, some of yours as well. I certainly want to touch somebody. Good Lord, it's been a long time. Uh, you know, I need a hug. More of it. Uh, but, but more importantly, I mean, House of Rainbow hosts a summer cookout. And the summer cookout brings various people from the various Black African Caribbean communities together where we share food like jollof rice, rice and peas, you know, I mean, the cultural food that people are so used to. And we've missed that now, uh, almost two years running. So, um, but I mean, my message of hope to to young people uh, is to be yourself. Uh, Be yourself because you are always right. Um, You know, many LGBTQ plus people knew who they were from about five, seven years old. We, We had that understanding, but because of the lack of clarity, the lack of visibility around us, um, we, 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 we kind of like dull it down. And maybe also depending on the, on the environment that we live in, if the environment is hostile, it means that we take it into a deeper part of our consciousness and the closet. So I want to say to young people, be yourself when it comes to who you are as an LGBT plus non-binary, non-conforming, be yourself because you are always right. You are always right. And I'm going to pass by the little world. Thank you, Gide. Thank you. Um, so my hope, personal hope post-lockdown, actually, is that I take some of the things I valued about lockdown into normal life. So some of that chance to slow down, think about what's important, <laughs> think about, you know, the part I want to play in the new world think about what bits we don't want rebuilt (laughs) or we want to rebuild differently so I kind of want to take some of that time and reflection and enjoying being with my um, family into into the next life so that it's not completely the same I don't want back the old one I want a a better one Uh, so so that's how I feel and my message of hope, I think, for, for young people is you absolutely deserve to be safe and seen and that there are so many people working to make that be true. <laughs> we, are, we are with you. If you look at everybody on this call in our different organisations, our universities, our communities, we are all trying to make a world where you get to be you without these feelings of pain. So um, you're not alone. Lovely, lovely phrase to finish on, isn't it? You're not alone. Even though you might feel it, you're not alone. And the six people here, at least, who will testify to that. We're not alone. I guess um, it's important to me to give you all some homework. So I'm saying this to my colleagues on the panel and to you at home. If you've enjoyed this last um, 40 minutes or so, what three words bounce off the page to you? For me, hope is one of them. Um, 
One of them is support. Another one is a phrase, putting my foot in the door. So I'm going to take those. What are your words? What are your phrases? And I think um, that'll help you to have an agenda going forward of hope and 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 give you something to think about and, and look forward to. And, uh, certainly as we emerge out of this strange world we're all living in at the moment, and um, when we reconnect, um, what, what what will give us life um, as we look forward together? It just uh, remains for me to say on behalf of Papyrus Prevention of Young Suicide, thank you for watching this. Thank you for listening to us, sharing our stories. I hope it's helped you to validate and celebrate you. Um, and I want to say thank you to Alex, to Finn, to Catherine, to Mo and Jude. Um, six friends sharing stories. Why don't you join us and do the same? Come and connect with Papyrus if you're not already and help us to save young lives. Thank you for listening and for your part in making suicide part of the conversation. Sometimes listening to these stories can be hard. So if you're a young person struggling with thoughts of suicide, or if you're worried about a young person, you can contact Hopeline UK on 0800-068-4141. You can text 07860-039967. Or you can email Pat at papyrus-uk.org.